Hello, I'm Lucy. And I'm Michelle. Welcome to the 15th episode of Tudoriferous, the fortnightly biographical podcast that examines lives in the Tudor era. And today, a special episode on Juan Borgia. But not the whole of his life. In fact, none of his life. What? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I thought we agreed. (laughs) Who killed Juan? Ah, yes. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So, come with me, if you will, to a small study. It's dark outside. Sounds of shouts and laughter come up from the street below. Young gallants are heading out for a night of carousing and noisy drunken pleasure. The man sits at his desk in the study. He glances out of the window and tuts as he sees the overdressed young men heading out to goodness knows where, to do goodness knows what. The man pulls the candle closer to him and opens his diary, as he does every night. Often he fills its pages with descriptions of day-to-day rituals, or more often these days, of rituals ignored by his boss, His Holiness the Pope. (laughs) (laughs) You know what we're talking about. (laughs) He starts to write, but tonight he has a story to tell. So, who was Juan Borgia? So, we are doing a bit of his life, but not, not a hell of a lot. Well, uh, who is doing the writing? Oh, that was uh, CP3O. CP3O? <laughs> C3PO. <laughs> Burchard. Burchard, yeah. Yeah. Juan was Alexander's second and apparently favourite son. Everyone has favourites, don't they? It's terrible. He inherited the title Duke of Gandia. In June 1493, an envoy from Ferdinand and Isabella arrived in Rome, proposing that Alexander's son, Geoffrey, should marry Sancha, the illegitimate daughter of Ferrante, the king of Naples, and that Juan should marry Maria Enriquez, a a cousin of King Ferdinand, which he did. In August, Juan left for Spain, accompanied by four galleys laden with jewels and luxurious furnishings for his new palace. I wonder if his wife actually thought this was a good catch because he was the son of a pope or if she was angry that she was getting some nobody. Well, if she wasn't angry to start with, she soon had reason to be. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, she might have thought he was going to be really nice because he was the son of a pope, but um, that didn't last. Nobody in that family is nice. (laughs) No, and Juan is easily one of the worst. (laughs) By November, reports were reaching Rome of his misbehaviour, his mistreatment of his wife, his reluctance to consummate the marriage, his extravagance and his gambling. Cesare, his brother, wrote to him, I'm not as much happy with my new dignity of cardinal as sad about your bad behaviour in Barcelona, reported to the Pope. In the night time, you were running round the streets, killing dogs and cats, visiting the whorehouse, heavily gambling instead of obeying your father-in-law and respecting your wife. Oh, See? my. And that's Cesare telling him that? That's Cesare telling him not to be a naughty boy. Oh, I don't... Uh, Pots and kettles, I'm thinking. Yeah, but wow. How... Yeah. Killing cats... And, why would you go around killing cats and dogs? It's a sign of psychopathic behaviour, isn't it? For yes. people who kill people often started by killing animals. I don't like this episode. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't matter. He gets bumped off in a bit. Okay. (laughs) He deserves it. Now now you can see why I found 14 possible culprits for his murder. (sighs) 
I mean, perhaps the RSPCA, the um, Animal, <laughs> Animal Society, would, would be one of them. Later, Juan was given the Neapolitan title of Prince of Tricarico. Then, when Alfonso II was crowned by the Pope, King of Naples, he rewarded all the Borgia boys, and Juan got several fiefs and an offer of 33,000 ducats a year to serve as a condottieri for Naples. That sounds like a great deal. Well, yeah, and that's effectively the leader of a group of mercenaries, so a licensed thug. (laughs) Really, that's what he's become, a licensed thug. Mm, You basically just legitimized his behavior. Good job. Yes. Well, he has been an unlicensed thug up to now, and now he's got (laughs) (laughs) permission. In August 1496, Juan returned to Rome on the summons of his father, leaving his son and pregnant wife in Spain. And he was welcomed to the city by a large group of cardinals, ambassadors, soldiers and officials. And the 20-year-old Juan cut a fine figure as he strutted through the city, magnificently clothed in a long mantle of gold brocade, a jewel-encrusted doublet of brown velvet. He wore a scarlet hat hung with pearls and rode a bay horse adorned with tinkling silver bells. So, yes, he's no shrinking violet, is he? (laughs) It's look at me. He was accompanied not only by his squires, but also by an unruly crowd of dwarfs and buffoons. I'm not sure why they're put in the same category, dwarfs and buffoons. A lot of the ruling houses found dwarves to be lucky. So you would find them in a lot of, like, royal houses. The queen would have one, the king would have one, princes and princes Mm. would have one. It's it's weird. But they did consider them, like, fools. They would often have them do little plays and skits, thinking it was hilarious. Ooh, uh, when we get to Elizabeth... Catherine de' Medici, she had her dwarfs, she had a male and a female, um, play act Queen Elizabeth and Dudley. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> I know there were two monarchs, I can't remember who they were now, who had a competition to find out who had the shortest dwarf. Oh, I don't know that one. I know Mary mm. Mary Tudor, the first queen, Mary, she had her own dwarf that she was incredibly fond of. Didn't go anywhere without her. It soon became apparent to Rome that Juan and Cesare detested each other. Juan was jealous of Cesare, who seemed now to be their father's right-hand man, while Cesare, the elder of the two, seized with resentments at, at the indulgence shown to his arrogant and pretty useless brother. Oh, so I was wrong. I thought Juan was the eldest. No. Okay. Now, I assume that because... You sort of assume that the elder goes into the army and the younger yeah. one goes into the church. But maybe if you're a pope's family, right, it the might church, be reversed. church comes first, yeah. Yeah. Other than Alexander, very few people cared for Juan, who was described by the Aragonese chronicler Geronimo Zurita as having been a spoilt boy and being now a very mean young man, full of ideas of grandeur, haughty, cruel and unreasonable. Lovely. Yeah, he could be seen swaggering around Rome in his gorgeous attire, excessively proud of his figure. Like his father, he had considerable sex appeal. I don't think I mentioned that in uh, Alexander's episode. Cause Pretty sure he didn't. <laughs> looking at the paintings, you can't quite see no. where this appeal comes from. But... No, he's a very fat man. <laughs> I'm not saying anything against fat men, but my God. Well, it was widely rumoured that Sancha was sleeping with both of her husband's brothers. She married Joffrey. So it clearly aggravated Cesare's animosity, not to mention Joffrey's. What happened on the night of the murder? 
And I'm going to quote Birchard here, the Pope's Master of Ceremonies. I'm going to quote his diary in full about the night of the murder, since he was there at the time and he described it well, so it seems a bit pointless me paraphrasing it. I'm glad this is coming out after Christmas, so it won't be right after Dudley's episode. <laughs> we don't need this much negativity in one go. Well, I did think around Christmas, we have uh, murder mysteries and, and ghost stories and things for some reason. I don't know why. Really? Oh. Mm, very popular at Christmas. The nice cosy ones, not not like this. <laughs> Quote, When morning came and it was seen that the Duke had not returned to the Apostolic Palace, his personal servants became alarmed, and one of them informed the Pope about the evening's activities of his two sons, and the fruitless wait for John Juan's return. Thereupon his holiness became very anxious, but continued to hope for the Duke's safe return throughout the rest of the day, since he persuaded himself that his son had intended to seek enjoyment with a girl, and for that reason had not wanted to be seen leaving her house in daylight. But when he still did not appear, the Pope grew exceedingly distressed and moved to the very depths of his being. He set on foot urgent inquiries amongst everybody, especially with those who might know something of the night's happenings. Of those who were questioned, one man, Giorgio Schiavi, was a wood dealer who used to have timber unloaded from a ship near the sewerage conduit. And in order to keep a watch on his wood, to prevent it being stolen, Schiavi would sail in a boat up and down the river. When asked if he'd seen anything thrown into the river on the preceding Wednesday night, he replied that, as he was watching over his logs and resting quietly in his boat, two men came on foot down the alley to the left of the Ospedale di Schiavini at about midnight. They had walked along the public path beside the river, looking carefully about to see if anyone were crossing the Tiber, but finding nobody they'd retraced their steps up the alley. After a short while, two other men had appeared from the same street who did precisely what the first couple had done, and then seeing that the coast was clear, had given a signal to some associates. Thereupon, a rider had appeared on a white horse with the body of a dead man slung across its back, the head and arms hanging over to one side and the feet on the other. Keeping the body steady so that it should not roll off the animal were the two men he observed first. The party had moved away from Schiavi, crossing past the end of the sewage outfall into the river, and then they'd halted. The horse had turned its tail towards its river, and the two men on foot had taken the body, one by its hands and arms, the other by its feet and legs, and had dragged it from the horse. They had then lifted it up by its arms and flung it with all their strength and might into the river. The man sitting on horseback had asked if the body had sunk, and the others replied, Yes, sir. But then, looking back at the river, he had caught sight of the dead man's cloak still afloat. On inquiring what the black object was that he could see, he had been told that it was the cloak, whereupon he had thrown stones onto it until it had disappeared under the water. When finally they had observed that the cloak had vanished, all five men left. They had gone along the street that led to the Ospedale di San Giacomo and had disappeared from Schiavi's view. He had seen no more of them. When the Pope's servant asked him why he had not revealed such a crime to the city governor, his reply was that during his time he had seen a hundred bodies thrown into the river at that point on different nights, and he'd never thought anything of it. Oh, wow. Therefore, he'd attached no particular weight to this incident. When this information had been learnt, the fishermen and boatmen of the city were summoned and instructed to fish for the body, with the promise of a great reward for their labours. 300 fishermen and boatmen in all assembled, and they used all their gear to search the depths of the river. After the hours of Vespers, or possibly a little earlier, they eventually found the Duke, still fully dressed with his gloves tucked under his belt containing 30 ducats, 
and with stab wounds in nine places, one in the neck and the other eight in the head, body and legs. The body was then placed in the boat and carried to the Castel Sant'Angelo, where it was stripped, washed and dressed in military costume under the supervision and control of my colleague Don Bernardino Guttari as clerk of ceremonies. At about six o'clock on the same evening, the Duke's corpse was carried by the nobleman of his own household from the castle to the church of Santa Maria del Popolo in a procession led by 120 torchbearers, all the palace ecclesiastics and papal chamberlains and shield bearers, all marching along, weeping and wailing and in considerable disorder. The body was borne on a magnificent bier so that all could see it, and it seemed that the Duke were not dead, but only sleeping. It was entombed in the church of Santa Maria del Popolo, where it remains to this day. On learning that the Duke was dead and had been thrown like dung into the river, the Pope was deeply moved and shut himself away in a room to grieve and anguish of heart, weeping most bitterly. Cardinal Martini of Segovia, with some other servants of His Holiness, came to the door of the apartment, and after they had exhorted, questioned and pleaded for many hours, persuaded the Pope to open the door and let them in. From Wednesday evening until the following Saturday, the Pope ate and drank nothing, whilst from Thursday morning to Sunday he was quiet for no more than any hour. At last, however, after the exhortations of these friends, His Holiness agreed to begin ending his mourning in so far as he was able, since he understood that otherwise he would bring greater harm and danger to himself through it. End of quote. And after this, several pages of Birchett's diary are missing, which is highly... Highly suspicious. Really? Yes. There are chunks, there's a few chunks out of his diary, and each time it's when something <laughs> has happened that you know, somebody doesn't want to, people to know about. Darn it. So it's assumed that these pages either contain the name of the murderer or at least his speculations about who it could be. Right. So who, do you know who had access to his diaries to modify them? No. Okay. But I mean, normally they were just diaries with, you know, a load of stuff about ritual in, so he probably didn't yeah. protect them that closely. No. Yeah. I should imagine that was the sort of funeral that Alexander would have expected rather than the one he got. Yep. Being pummeled into his coffin. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, Birchett can't tell us who did this dastardly deed, but that won't stop us from unveiling the murderer. We're all assembled in the drawing room of the country house. The grandfather clock is tickling lugubriously. The butler shimmies around the room distributing cocktails. Lucretia adjusts her lipstick while Cesare draws his hand over his oiled back hair and fingers his moustache nervously. Are we ready to reveal the culprit? If we go for the rumours, don't let Lucretia near your drinks. <laughs> well, any of them. <laughs> right, I found 14, yes, 14 possible murderers. So your job is to choose once and for all who committed the crime. And you can play along, play along at home as we will be putting a poll up on the website for you to vote for your preferred culprit. You have to figure out how to do the poll. <laughs> yes. So this case has been cold too long. It's time we hotted it up and put it to bed. If that's not mixing too many metaphors. <laughs> Who did kill Juan Borgia? Number one. Robbery. The prose for this theory is that it was a pretty lawless city. Many robberies took place, and a rich man wandering around in the dead of night, presumably a little worse for wear, would be seen as fair game. But would they have been that organised in disposing of the body? Well, from what Schiavi said, 
bodies yes. were being locked yeah. into that river all the time. Yeah. The cons to this is he had a purse containing 30 ducats, which right. is a hell of a lot of money. And his body was richly clothed. And we've looked at the expensive clothes that the rich were wearing at the time. And he was always gorgeously attired. So a robber would surely have stripped him bare or at least nicked his money. Yes. So pros and cons there. Mm-hmm. Mostly cons. Mostly cons. Two, Cesare. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> right, give it a chance. <laughs> there are some equally likely ones later on. But anyway, yes, Cesare. The pros, he had been out with his brother that evening, so it wouldn't have been so very hard to have him followed. And Cesare chafed at the restrictions of an ecclesiastical career. He was a cardinal who would have preferred a lifetime in the military. And Juan's death meant that he could change his field of activities. The Pope was keen to have at least one of his sons in a position to rule the Papal States. But was he 100% sure that was a possibility? You got the impression that he just nagged his dad all the time for things. <laughs> he probably was just saying, Dad, Dad, Dad. Oh, Dad, I want to join the army, Dad. So, um, I don't know. We don't know. Maybe Joffrey wasn't up to much. We don't hear about the kids from his other relationships. So, Cesare might have been the logical one. Joffrey doesn't even come down through time, really. I didn't. I've read that book about Lucretia and I completely forgot about Joffrey. Yeah, I've not come across him doing very much. Yeah. I don't know if much was expected of him. Juan was Cesare's rival in the affection for their sister-in-law, mm-hmm. Sancha, who was married to Geoffrey. Some went as far as to suggest that the two brothers were both lovers of their own sister, Lucretia, and that the murder was caused by his jealousy. Juan's widow accused Cesare of the crime, and it became generally accepted in Venice that he was responsible for the murder. Sancha seems to have suspected Cesare, and this was also common gossip in Spain, where both Queen Isabella and Maria Enriquez, Juan's widow, were inclined to believe the stories of Cesare's guilt were probably true. In Assassin's Creed Ascendancy, Cesare did it. My husband loves that game. And also in the Borgias and in Horrible Histories, he did it as well, so popular mm-hmm. entertainment has spoken. The two brothers hated each other. That was well known. They were both jealous of the relationship the other had with the Pope. Cesare was jealous that Juan had been given rule over the Papal States when he was obviously incompetent. This would explain the abruptness with which the case was dropped just a week after it had been initiated. Yeah. Because, yeah, Alexander set people to to find out who had killed his son. Right. Just a week later, he changed his mind and said, no, forget it. If Alexandra had discovered that Cesare were to blame, he wouldn't want their dirty linen washed in public. Uh, but as, And as we saw in his episode, he could deny Cesare nothing. Yeah. The cons, and there are some. The Pope officially didn't believe it was Cesare. Officially. Officially. But it may have been a case of not wanting to believe his own son could do such a thing. Or maybe it was a case of keeping a united front as yeah. a family. Or maybe he didn't do it. <laughs> And Juan's widow only accused Cesare much later when he'd already been disgraced and killed, so she may have been putting some distance between her and her brother-in-law and trying to ingratiate herself with later popes. Okay. So that's all I've got in the cons column. Obviously, it's a little bit more pro-heavy. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a little thin on the cons column. But we have plenty more. Number three, the Orsini family. Ooh, I know quite a bit about these guys. Mm, pros. 
Juan would have been heir to their estates if Alexander's ter territorial ambitions had worked out. Mm -hmm. The Orsini had initially promised to defend Rome and Naples, but when it came to it, they sided with the French. And once the French had been expelled from Italy, they could no longer protect the Orsini. Mm -hmm. So Alexander sent an army to take Orsini land and castles in his name. And the head of the expedition was Juan. That being wholly incompetent, the whole thing failed, causing embarrassment to Alexander and the Borgia family. So what further fueled the rage of the Orsini was the death in January 1497 of the patriarch, Virginia Orsini, who had been held in prison in Naples since the Orsini had turned to the French, whereupon Pope Alexander had seized all his property, as his, as his modus operandi normally was. Yeah. The Orsini then had to pay 50,000 ducats to get their property back. So what better way to get back at the Borgias than to kill Alexander's favourite son? There's yes. no hard evidence to support allegations against the Orsini, but it might be an alternative explanation as to why Alexander called off the investigation. He may have been planning more long-term revenge against them. A few weeks after the murder, on July the 1st, the Florentine envoy in Rome reported that since Alexander no longer showed much interest, as to the men guilty of the murder, it was held to be certain beyond any doubt that His Holiness had now discovered the truth and that he thinks of nothing but the way in which he can may safely lay hands of the guilty men. So it implied that revenge was more on the cards than justice. Hmm. And later that year, Manfredo Man Manfredi, the Mantuan ambassador, told the Duke of Ferrara, it seems that more than ever the Pope gives signs of blaming the Orsini for the murder of his son, and it's believed that he's disposed to avenge it. Except they could have just been a scapegoat. Indeed. At the same time it was reported from Venice, His Holiness intends to ruin the Orsini because they've caused the death of his son, the Duke of Gandia. Cons? Again, not much in the way of cons. Mm -hmm. They could have done it. There's no proof. No. That's that's more like a find for cons. Yeah, they seem to have good reason. But we've got plenty more. Mm -hmm. Number four, Ascanio and Giovanni Sforza. Ascanio was a cardinal, and Juan was alle Juan allegedly killed his butler. But <laughs> this, this, this in itself would not necessarily have led to Juan's murder. Not necessarily, but you yeah. never know. Wow. <laughs> Juan, yeah, you wonder what he did. I mean, I, I'm, ima I'm imagining a sort of Jeeves character. And this butler. sounds much worse than the Tudors right now. <laughs> So far, we've just got the tutors putting people in prison and costing them money and not going around and killing people like the butler. <laughs> Worse than the butler was the humiliation to the Sforza family of the annulment of Giovanni's marriage to Lucretia, which yes. had started by being such a useful link to the Spanish court, but had then become an inconvenience. Juan quarrelled with Giovanni during a military campaign in February 1497, and then shortly after, proposals were made to secure the nullification of Lucretia's marriage. Giovanni, fearing for his life, fled from Rome in Holy Week, and he was forced to sign a humiliating document confessing non-consumption of his marriage to Lucretia due to impotence. And he didn't want to do that. He, no. The rest of the, no, the rest of the Sforza family pushed him into it because they didn't want trouble. So you can imagine the pent-up resentment that he would have harboured. Yeah. Yeah. Not only was he deprived of a lucrative marriage, but it was done in the most humiliating way possible. Yeah. I mean, especially for Italian manhood. I think they're above the Orsinis now. Okay. 
He was allowed to keep the dowry, but he had to swear that Lucretia was a virgin, despite the fact she was pregnant by this time by an unknown man. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> While the divorce may not have been Juan's fault directly, it was instigated following an argument between the two men. Moreover, Juan was claimed to be Alexander's favourite, so we come back to the idea, what better way to get back at the Pope than killing his favourite son? Yeah, that one seems a bit more personal and real. Hmm. Cons? Again, not many. <laughs> and it was not unknown in Renaissance Rome to end an argument with a knife. <laughs> wow. So that's so. when I say cons, not many, I mean cons, none. I couldn't think of any. No. Number five. Juan's wife. Pros. Juan was an inveterate womanizer. She had borne two children and was pregnant with a third when he was murdered. And yet he carried on with other women and boasted of it. So you can imagine how tired she was of this vain, dissolute, womanizing, tedious mediocrity of a husband. Yeah. I mean, it's... It wouldn't be uh, unknown for people to find somebody to bump off Especially irritating Especially when you know there's spouses. absolutely no way you're going to get a divorce or annulment because he's the son of the Pope. So she's only got the one way out. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Pope's quite happy to get rid of his children's spouses, but he's not going to get rid of his children to, yeah. to get out. The cons. Juan's widow lived for another 42 years. She never remarried. She was very generous to churches and monasteries. I'm not sure that makes a big difference. We've come across terrible people who are generous to churches and monasteries. So if she did kill him, it was to rid rid herself of him in particular. It wasn't to provide herself with a better option. Well, maybe it was so horrific that no husband was the better option. Uh, Yeah, I wouldn't have wanted him. No. Especially if he's going around killing cats and dogs. Yeah. (laughs) Number six, Lucretia Borgia. She was to have her husband taken away from her, and we don't know how she felt about that. I mean, there was a rumour going around Rome following Giovanni Sforza's flight from the city that Lucretia had heard of the plot, whereby Alexander and Cesare, and presumably Juan, planned to murder Giovanni, and she warned him of it. So that might indicate some affection in the marriage. Giovanni, in retaliation for the accusation of impotence that the Borgia family intended to use as the reason of the annulment of their marriage, he countered it with an accusation against Lucretia of paternal and fraternal incest. So if she had been fond of him, it would probably have worn off by that point. Yeah. People don't like being accused of incest. No. Like people don't like being accused of impotence. Yeah. Cons. I can't imagine he loved her then. I mean, you could be mad at the brother and the father, but to do that to a woman you loved? No. No. He didn't love her. Cons. Lucretia remained on friendly terms with her father and Cesare, so why would she have singled out Juan for punishment? However, she continued to get on with Cesare after he killed her second husband, who yes. she was fond of. Yes. So she does seem to have taken all these things in her stride. He was the one killed by Cesare's horrible sidekick, Correct, yeah. I think his name was. Number seven, Alexander. Really? I haven't come across anybody else suggesting this. I mean, some of these I've come, I've okay. thought up because I thought, why not? I mean, 
<laughs> he was a he was a terrible man, and people had lots of reasons. Alexander the Pope could have had the feeling that Juan was a bad choice for the military leader for the family. He couldn't demote him without embarrassment, so why not quietly do away with him? And on whose say so do we think that Juan was the Pope's favourite? It was just common knowledge. Juan's bad behaviour pained Alexander. We know mm -hmm. that. Uh, when reports started arriving back from Spain about Juan's misdemeanours, Cesare wrote to him, Try to fulfil the hope which His Holiness has always founded upon you. If you ha have my own feelings at heart, do see that these reports, which give His Holiness so much pain, should cease. So we know that Alexander was distressed by Juan's behaviour. Mm -hmm. And in a culture where honour was valued so highly, better your son is found in a river than that he should disgrace you. I struggle with mm -hmm. that one just because of how quickly he sent people searching for him. But that yep. could just be because of the way you put it in the story. Mm. Okay. No, it's, it wasn't hugely high on my list, but I thought it's a possibility. Mm -hmm. Cons? There's no proof of this whatsoever. <laughs> it's not even a hint. It's, it, it's entirely my own creation. Okay. <laughs> okay, eight. Joffrey. Prose, it was widely believed at the time because Juan was having an affair with his wife, Sancha. Oh, my gosh. Both Cesare and Juan had syphilis. So did they infect Sancha? <sighs> well, almost certainly. Well, cons, Cesare was also having an affair with her and Joffrey didn't kill him. Mm -hmm. But maybe he didn't know about Cesare. So... It doesn't... That seems like such a horrible place to be. Yeah, you do feel that Joffre is definitely the also-ran, really, isn't he, compared yeah. to the other two big hitters? Yeah, almost like he's the doormat of the entire mm. family. What did Sancho think about him? I mean, to have an if, if I mean, if it's true, to have an affair with both of his brothers, yeah, it does seem as if she didn't think that Joffre was up to much. Gosh, although with the way they've been portrayed, I wouldn't doubt that it could have been that she was forced. Yeah. Yes, I'd, I wouldn't put that past them. So that's the family dealt with. Number nine. Guido Baldo da Montefeltro, Duke of Urbino. Prose. Juan was chosen by Alexander to be second in command to Guido Baldo and captain general of the papal armies in Alexander's campaign against the Orsini. On October 26, 1496, Juan and Guidobaldo, dressed in full armour, received their banners of office from the Pope in St. Peter's, and the following day they marched north against the Orsini. Ten castles were captured within a matter of weeks, but at Bracciano, Guidobaldo was wounded, not seriously, but bad enough for Juan to be obliged to take over command. The Orsini rid ridiculed him by sending a donkey into his camp with a placard tied around its neck declaring, I'm the ambassador of the Duke of oh, Grandia. <laughs> and another insulting message screwed up and inserted into the poor animal's backside. Oh! What the heck? So it's all high-level comedy, this, isn't it? Aww. All sophisticated stuff. Oh, my gosh. Okay. okay. Two assaults on the castle had failed when a report reached Juan that a relieving force commanded by Car Carlo Orsini was heading his way, and Juan unwisely decided to raise the siege and go out to confront him in open field. So on the 24th of January 1497, the papal forces were routed at Soriano, and the army was, in the words of Birchett, heavily defeated in great dishonour. 
Guido Baldo was captured, he continued, and some 500 of our soldiers killed and many more wounded, while the Orsini captured all our cannon and utterly scattered our forces. Juan, who was slightly wounded in the face, rode back to Rome, and Alexander was forced to make peace with the Orsini on their terms, and he had to give up all the captured castles on payment of an indemnity of 50,000 ducats, which the Orsini hoped to raise by demanding a ransom for that amount for the release of Guido Baldo. But the ransom was not paid by the Pope, so poor Guido Baldo languished in prison until the ransom was paid by his own subjects. So Guido Baldo had two reasons to be furious at one. Juan had lost everything that Guido Baldo had won, and then wouldn't even pay the ransom to get him released. And he, had, he was there for years, sitting there brooding over who had put him there. We need an uplifting episode. <laughs> it's all right, we've got one about syphilis coming up. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Cons, again, very few, if any. I'd have done it if I were him. <laughs> <laughs> so, see, he's quite a good one. Yes, he is. He had a lot of time to brood over what his he misfortune. Mm. I can imagine he's him scratching pictures of Juan on the wall and yeah. of his cell, yeah. disposing of him in various ways. Ten, Gonsalvo. Now, he's a Spanish general who despised Juan. I think you need to get, get, in, get in line, really, to despise Juan. <laughs> Despite his failure at Soriano, Juan was soon afterwards sent in command of another papal army, this time to besiege the fortress of Ostia, southeast of Rome, where a French garrison still remained in control. This time, Alexander turned for help to the Spanish monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella, who sent their highly experienced and successful commander, Gonsalvo de Cordoba, to his aid, as well as a corps of trustworthy Spanish troops from Naples. Ostia surrendered on March the 9th, and the papal troops marched back to Rome, where Juan infuriated Gonsalvo by claiming equal credit for the success at Ostia, despite the fact that Juan had been pretty much a leader in name only. Gonsalvo had done all the heavy lifting for that. So Gonsalvo was rewarded with a papal order of chivalry, you know, which is nice. Mm -hmm. But Juan was given the Duchy of Benevento to add to his list of titles. Mm. See, Juan just leaves a trail of infuriated people behind him. You imagine Everywhere. him not realising either. Yeah. So Gonsalvo could easily have done it. I mean, he was angry enough. I mean, that's the one thing you hear about him, that he hated Juan. Yeah. The cons, again, very little. And I was thinking it was beginning to feel like murder on the Orient Express. I mean, they could all have lined up to do it. <laughs> Number 11, Count Antonio Maria della Mirandola. And he's the father of a girl that Juan deflowered and then boasted about it everywhere. And he was also mm. a close associate of Ascania Forza. Pros, protection of one's daughter, particularly for paternal reasons, and partly because Juan's boasting of what he'd done would severely scupper the family's chances of getting a good marriage for her. It would definitely be something I think a man would do. Yes. Especially um, then. <laughs> I mean, it'd be easily a, a reason to seek revenge. Yeah. I, mean, I, mean, I should think most operas have <laughs> that sort of story, haven't it? It's got an operatic feel to yes, it. Yes, it does. The cons... Well, I would intended to try and put equal weighting behind the pros and cons for each of these people, but one was so awful. You know, yeah. There are hardly any cons for any of these people. No. 
The only the only con that goes all the way through is what would happen to them if the Pope found out. Yeah. But then they were so furious. And the Pope did seem to stop quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Looking looking for some. Right, number twelve, Miguel de Corella. We've already just talked about him. He was the one who killed Lucretia's husband. Yeah. And he was also the one that ransacked Alexander's rooms when the post literally just died. Oh. So he was a lovely person. He was, a, yeah. He was a good friend of Cesare. In 1503, when Julius II became Pope, he issued a warrant for Cesare's Lieutenant Corella, who was to be questioned about the deaths of many people, including Alfonso of Aragon, Lucretia's second husband, Astori Manfredi, Duke of Faenza, and his brother, whose bodies weighted with stones have been found in the Tiber, so the same sort of disposal. In 1502, Giulio Cesare of Verona, Lord of Camerino. Oh my gosh, he's got quite the list then. He has, and they're all very upmarket people, aren't they? Yeah. He'd been strangled, and the two of his, his sons had their throats cut. Do we know if any of those were on Cesare's orders, or were they just... I don't know, but he was Cesare's lieutenant, so... Yeah. So, and many others, including Juan Borgia. So, Corella had been friends with Cesare since childhood, and so loyalty to him could have driven him to kill Juan. When he saw Juan was being the Pope's favourite and getting all the military gigs, he may have wanted to open up an opportunity for his best friend, Cesare. Cons. We actually have a con for this one. Oh. He was arrested and tortured by Julius II. You shouldn't have to say that, really. I mean, Julius II's a pope. (laughs) pope. You shouldn't have to say he was tortured by the Pope. As Julius's attempt to discredit Alexander, because Corella had been a friend of the family for years, mm-hmm. and so if anyone knew the dirt, then Corella did. Yeah. But Corella refused to name names, and he was later released. So the accusation that he killed one and all the others was possibly only just to discredit the Borgias. Well, if he didn't name names, perhaps he was just good at keeping his mouth shut. Yeah. Because not everybody submits under torture. I don't know. I'm going to keep that guy in. Because he seems like quite an evil character. Oh, yeah. Number 13. Nearly there. (laughs) The Masked Man. (laughs) So no name. (laughs) We don't know who it is. Okay. Uh, When Juan and Cesare left the party and Juan decided to go on to seek more pleasure because Juan and Cesare had been at their mother's house. Okay. And have supper. So obviously sometimes they did get together. Perhaps, you know, mum had said to them, for goodness sake, stop stop bickering, come over to supper. Juan decided to go off in search of more pleasure. And he was alone, except, as Birch had recorded, for one footman and a masked man who had joined the Duke during supper and who had, moreover, visited him every day at the Vatican for a month or so beforehand. Then how can he not know this person's name? Because he was always had a mask on. <laughs> This person the Duke placed on his mule's crupper behind him, and together they rode to the Piazza degli Ebrei. There, Don Juan dismissed his one remaining footman and ordered him to wait for him in the piazza for an hour, after which, if he did not appear, the servant was to return to the palace. With these words, the Duke left the groom and galloped away with his masked friend seated behind him on the mule to an unknown place where he was murdered and then thrown into the river close by the ospedale of San Girolami degli Schiavini. That's a long name. And the servant left behind in the Piazza degli Ebre was also attacked and mortally wounded. He was given attention in a neighbouring house, but his owner was so terrified that he would not send anyone to give the news or report what had happened until the next day, unquote. 
So could the masked man have killed him, or at least lured him into a place where others had killed him? Because who else would have known that he had left a footman in the Piazza de Libre? Mm-hmm. Or, I have a theory that's purely my own again. Okay. <laughs> Was it a masked man or a masked woman? Because it might have explained why she had been turning up at the uh, palace. Yes. She may have felt slighted by Juan. Or probably she was slighted by Juan, because it's Juan. It's Juan. (laughs) (laughs) Most people were. Most women were. She may have lured him away under the pretext of a night of passion. And in fact, her family were waiting in the shadows. Or again, was this masked man one of the other culprits we've already covered? So... The cons, we have no idea who he or she was. <laughs> That's a pretty big con. But he was there. I mean, he was on the scene. He has the means. And we don't know if he has the motive because we don't know who it is. Yeah, we have no idea who. So number 14, unknown personal quarrel. Pros, Juan was a womanizer who bragged about how many women he'd had. He was an incompetent general. He was someone who swaggered about in sumptuous clothes and he killed dogs and cats. He was an all-round unbearable human being. Yeah. So there may well have been an embittered party that we've no information about that did the deed and probably yep. felt that they'd done Italy a favour in getting rid of the man. Well, it sounds like it, whoever did it did do Italy a favour. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the cons, I mean, by the nature of the argument, we'll never know unless some damning manuscript turns up. Mm-hmm. But it could, be, it could be someone not on the list because it just hasn't come down through history. I have my three favourites. Okay, I'll run through them quickly again. Okay. So forget. One, robbery. He wasn't robbed. Nope. Two, Cesare. Jealous for a number of reasons. Possibility. Three, Orsini. Juan was to be given their lands. Four, the Sforzas. Giovanni mm-hmm. had been hum- humiliated by the annulment of his marriage to Lucretia. Mm-hmm. Five, Juan's wife. Juan was a terrible husband. Mm-hmm. Six, Lucretia. Juan had helped dispose of a husband that she may not have wanted of disposing of. No. Seven, Alexander. Juan may have become an embarrassment. Mm. Eight, Joffrey. Juan was sleeping with his wife. Nine, Guidobaldo de Montre- Montefeltro. Juan threw away all his military gains and then left him to rot in prison. Ten, Gonsalvo. He stole Gonsalvo's thunder in Ostia. And Gonsalvo won the battle, yet Juan wanted the glory. Eleven, Count Mirandola. His daughter had been seduced, humiliated, and made useless on the marriage market. Mm-hmm. 12. Miguel de Corella. He was loyal to Cesare, but he was accused of the crime by Julius, so can we trust the verdict? 13. A masked man or woman. He had the means, but we don't know about the motive. And 14. The unknown personal quarrel. Pretty likely Juan was an argumentative womanizer. Why had someone not done this years ago? What do you think? I have my favourites. Cesare. Yeah. Giovanni Sforza. Yeah. Uh, Count Mirandola. Yeah. And Miguel Corella. Just the sort of thing you do. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm actually leaning closest to Miguel. He has a history of personal assassinations. It certainly does, yes. Yes. <laughs> so... I think. And he broke he broke into the Pope's apartments. Yeah. Threatened threatened a cardinal with a knife. Yeah. It, cardinal Casanova with a knife and um and then <laughs> took stole all the Pope's stuff while his body was still in the room. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going with him, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you could say that he was also doing it for Cesare, maybe, but I think he's still 
He's the weapon, if not the person directing the weapon. Right. Yeah, so we could sort of scoop in Cesare and Corella in one mm-hmm. thing. What do you think? Uh, well, <laughs> You've had longer to think about this. I would think it's... I th- I'm going less for the family aspect and more for the other people. Okay. So I'm thinking of either Guidobaldo, okay. he was in pris- prison for a long time, yeah. or Gonsalvo, because we know that he was furious about Juan nicking the glory. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to go for Guidobaldo. Okay. He sat, sat in prison drawing little pictures of Juan and sticking pins into it and <laughs> working out the best way to do it all those years. Oh, my goodness. But it could be any of them. It could be any of them. <laughs> so if we put a poll on the website. Okay. Should we do it on the website or do we want to do it on Facebook or Twitter? I don't know. It's up to you. You'd be doing it. Okay. Let me figure out how and then we'll put out where it yep. is. So. Yep. So people vote for who did the crime and we'll tot up the the mounts and so mm-hmm. at last we'll know who actually did it and we can put this case to bed after 524 years <laughs> oh that'd be interesting but whoever did it oh god he had it coming didn't he yes he did but so did the rest of them in that list yes. not a single person there was nice so that is that's that that's as far as we can go with that yeah thank you for listening That is the end of our episode on Juan Borgia. We hope you enjoyed it and will join us for the next episode on Perkin Warbeck. Thank you for listening. You can find details of the podcast and contact us on... In the meantime, the croaking raven doth bellow for revenge. My ashes, as the phoenix, may bring forth a bird that will revenge upon you all. Bye. Goodbye.